This episode is sponsored by Audible. Stick around to the end to learn how you can get a free audiobook. Okay, here we go. Sam sat at the small desk in his bedroom, staring at his computer screen. He tried to ignore his friends and concentrate on his work, but to say they were being intrusive was an understatement. His right arm tingled in a pulsing pattern for no reason. His left ear felt warm, then cool, and kept switching back and forth. If he wanted to ignore it, he could, but he was beginning to feel like a pinball machine of sensations. Various tingles and the like bouncing around his entire body. Sam finally broke and spun around slowly in his chair, opening fully to their presence. A crowd of people stood before him, filling the tiny space to capacity. It looked like he was hosting a Halloween costume party in his bedroom, but his partygoers were all semi-transparent and invisible to all except him. Dear Please listen to us, Betty said, her hands in prayer. She was dressed like a pilgrim or a Quaker from the colonial period. Black and white dress with a bonnet. Right, hear us out, lad, Ewan said, a Scottish warrior. He wore a kilt, leather armor, and held a broadsword in his hands. Timing is critical. David, who was the first to ever come to him years ago, stood calmly at the front of the crowd with his hands in his pockets and simply nodded in agreement with the others. He was a clear hippie, a poster child of the 60s. He had curly hair that flowed past his shoulders, no shoes, and wore bell-bottom jeans with a bright, loose-fitted button-down that was never buttoned. Please, Sam said, speaking the words in his head. I have real-life stuff to deal with right now. Your essay, said David, won't shift the consciousness of the world. But what we're telling you will. We are talking about real-life stuff. I heard this already, Sam spoke in his mind again but groaned aloud. I'm not some heroic figure. I'm not going to run off to do what my imaginary friends tell me to do. That's literally what crazy people are known for. Why they tested me and studied me as a kid. But you know, Betty said, hands on her hips, that we are not imaginary and we have never led you astray. Precisely, Ewan agreed. You've followed our leadership before. What's the problem now? Behind Ewan, Betty, and David, the others all nodded and chimed in with various sentiments of further agreements. I don't know. Sam said, posing like the thinker statue. What on earth could be different? Before now, you gave me advice on how to look at things differently or directed me towards books I'd love, how to be happier, and now... Sometimes, David said, we must answer a call beyond what we planned for, beyond what we expected. We must rise to what we are truly capable of and act for the betterment of the... Come on, David! Sam stood up. Enough! I'm not leaving home in the middle of my senior year to go chasing after some girl who... Sam trailed off as he heard someone climbing the stairs. He sat back at his desk and calmed his breathing. A moment later, his mother was knocking on the door. Yeah, 
Sam called over his shoulder, eyes on the essay he'd been putting the finishing touches on. Honey, his mother said, and Sam spun in his chair to face her. Did I hear... Hear what, Mom? Crap, did I say some of that out loud? His mom fidgeted with her hands. I thought I heard you say... David. Oh, yeah, I was on the phone with someone from school. About the essay. He pointed to his computer screen. His mother laughed, but her hands continued to fidget. Oh, I'm sorry, I just thought... You're not seeing imaginary people again, are you? What? Mom, that was like a decade ago. I don't even remember it. Sorry, honey, his mom said, backing away towards the door. It was just a strange time, but I'm glad you don't remember. Better off that way. I heard the name David and it brought it all back up. She giggled again. Well, nothing to worry about, Mom, Sam said. I gotta get back to this essay, though. I'm just giving it another once over before the bus comes. Of course, and don't forget, it's Kung Fu Friday. Your choice of movie this week. What's it going to be? Another Jackie Chan movie? I haven't decided yet, but I'm thinking maybe a switch to John claude Van Damme. Got it narrowed down to three options. I'll know by tonight. Okay. I'll let you get back to it then. She smiled, turned, and left the room. Sam looked over his shoulder to the crowd of semi-transparent people, all standing frozen, motionless, as if anyone else could see or hear them besides Sam. Sam shook his head. Don't you get it? He said in his mind and waved towards the now closed door. I'm one step away from being seen as a complete nutter, probably getting locked away and drugged up or something. If I do this, I'm risking the world seeing me as crazy. Courage. Ewan said, slamming his broadsword into the floor, which made no sound or mark. It's not the absence of fear or the absence of danger, but taking action when there's both. When I charged into battle with William Wallace, we- Ewan, Sam said, holding up a hand. Please, I'm sorry, everyone. I do feel for this girl who needs help, but someone else will have to help her. The room went silent and silent in his mind, none of his friends making any further remarks. It was just then, staring at the crowd, that he noticed a new, invisible person among them. A woman, dressed in a knight's armor, a sword sheathed at her side. She was looking at David, and David back at her. They seemed to be in some silent communication. Then she vanished. Sam felt curiosity welling up inside him, but he didn't want to ask, although he was pretty sure his thoughts had already asked the question. To not invite any more debate, Sam turned around to his essay to read over the final page. It looked all right. He printed the pages, put them in a folder, shoved that into his backpack, and left his room to go wait for the bus. On the bus to school, Sam sat alone, threw his hood up, and closed his eyes. Things were never too rowdy on the morning ride, and sitting with his hood up stopped anyone from starting up a conversation. Anyone alive, at least. David appeared to him in his mind, his bright orange shirt unbuttoned, of course. The space in Sam's mind morphed from the standard black nothingness to a grassy hilltop overlooking a vast, open stretch of land meeting a large, alpine lake in the distance. Sam sat beside David, taking in the scene. Sorry about how we've been acting lately. 
David began. We can be a passionate bunch, I know. Pushy, some would call it. Sam said the words in his head, trying to sound angry, but he couldn't hold back a smile. David smiled broadly, his bare toes wiggling in the grass. We press, he said, because time is of the essence, Sam. Every day that little girl remains where she is, is another day of her living without the proper care and love she needs. Every day, a little more of her specialness will get covered up, making it harder for her to ever reach the potential she has. And a mighty potential is inside her. This girl could change the world, Sam. But if she remains where she is too long, the world will surely miss out. So she's some kind of savior? Sam asked. No, David said, and you're not either. It's just about one person doing some good for another. Because it feels good. Because it aligns with your own beliefs about helping others when you can. One person helps another, then that person gets inspired to spread that same kindness further in the future. Life is simple, Sam. We just forget that we're all in this together while we're in these bodies. But me, Betty, Ewan, and all the rest know the truth. There is no separation. Or, as much as we are individual, we're equally one. That doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. You're a snowflake. Unique, individual. But you're still snow, too. The same as all snow. Sam sat in silence, looking out over the beautiful scenery. The sun was setting behind the mountains in the distance, but it also hadn't moved. The perks of creating in this mind space, this energy realm, was that a never-ending sunset was possible. And yet, simultaneously, Sam was quite aware of the bumps of the bus ride and the other teens talking around him. Sam, David continued, do you believe that myself and the others have helped you? Well, yeah, Sam spoke without hesitation. I know all those years ago was weird with my mom sending me in for tests and all, but you helped me understand and get through my dad just leaving us before that. Now, imagine if we weren't there to give that support. Sam looked at David for some reason startled by the idea. I don't know, Sam said. I was really upset when he left. I remember that. Try to imagine what the experience would have been like. Where you would be today. Sam really tried. He closed his eyes, pausing to make a quick note about how weird it was to close his eyes in his mind when his eyes were really closed on the bus too. Then he thought, when his parents told him they were getting a divorce and explained what that meant, separation, moving, time with mom, time with dad, but rarely time with both, he tried to recall his emotions. Then, his dad simply leaving for good, no idea where in the world he went. The feelings of that time swelled in him as they had within his eight-year-old self. David had appeared to him a few months earlier, but if David wasn't there during that time... Sam knew exactly where he'd be today. I wouldn't have been able to get over it, Sam said. Not on my own. I wouldn't have found the understanding for my dad's actions. The best word I can come up with is... Guarded? Exactly, David said. Guarding your heart can protect from hurt, but it also blocks you from ever feeling truly good. Which then blocks you from ever giving all your goodness back to the world. This is what this girl is facing now, and she's even younger than you were. By the time she understands her experiences as a child, 
shall have put up such guards that she may have rendered herself invisible to the world. Sam shook his head. He knew he hated this idea, knew he hated leaving this girl in whatever situation she was in. David and the others still wouldn't fully explain that. But at the same time, to go off unannounced? The fear of being sent back to the doctors and getting trapped in some psych ward filled him. I can always talk my way out of it, he thought, just like I did last time. We're simply offering you an opportunity, Sam. Not guilt, not shame, but an opportunity to live how you desire to live. It's your choice in the end, and I promise, whatever you decide, you will hear no more about this from us. Enough, David, Sam said, projecting anger, but then smiled. I'm already convinced. I'm in. What do I need to do? David whooped. Suddenly, the grassy hilltop they were sitting on was full of all his invisible friends. Betty was dancing with Ewan in a weird blend of dances that echoed each of their different histories and different cultures, but it worked somehow. The bus pulled up to the school, and Sam opened his physical eyes, smiling to his fellow students around him. Most just looked back with a tired, confused glare, unaware of the dance party happening in his mind. Sam stepped off the bus, but his next steps led him away from the school to where David directed him. He was off to go catch a train. Welcome to More Than a Story, where each episode is an original short story and a little more. At the end of each story, I'll briefly discuss an idea you can take away from it, something to inspire you, motivate you, or even challenge you to live out your biggest goals and dreams. My name is Derek Hennig, aka The Roaming Scholar, and it's my mission here and in everything I do to fill your day with something good. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's story, The Invisible Friends. Let's get to it. To set his plan in motion required two Ubers. The first Uber took him home, where he packed a change of clothes into his backpack. Then, he texted his mom to postpone their kung fu movie night until tomorrow, so he could spend the night at his friend Tyler's house. It took a little convincing and a little more lying, but she agreed. Now, she wouldn't be expecting to see him until tomorrow. The second Uber brought him here, to the train station. Sam stepped out of the car with a wave to the driver and slung his backpack over his shoulder. The area looked like most terminals from the outside, whether airport, train, or bus. People coming and going, dropping off and picking up, hugging and handshaking, waving and kissing. Inside is where things took on the particular appearance of a train station. The floors were tiled in geometric patterns of red, blue, and gold. The ceiling was high with wood beams crisscrossing along it the gaps between the beams painted in similar patterns as the tiles below. Large windows, almost floor-to-ceiling, covered the walls. That, along with wide, flat chandeliers, provided a golden glow to the space. Sam walked down the terminal towards the ticket booth, a sea of invisible friends trailing behind him, 
passing through objects and people without being bothered or doing any bothering either. Sam stood back from the line, inspecting the departure times and destinations displayed above the ticket windows. So, which train? Sam asked. Not sure, David said. Sam looked at him and rolled his eyes. Come on, enough of the games. Which train? Honestly, dear, Betty said. That's just not how it works. If it was that easy, you could just hop on the phone, call in a tip. But places and times don't really mean much to us anymore. We may appear to have eyes, but we don't see the way you do. We feel. Right, Ewan added. As it were, we're not really talking either. You got that brain of yours to take what we're emitting and decode it into terms you understand. It's all about the energy of things, Betty said. Not their physical attribute. How had he not known this? I guess I never needed help like this before, he thought. It was always just advice or hints, nudges. Huh. So, how do I get where I need to go? Sam said. Suddenly, images flashed before Sam. The ocean, which could be somewhere here in Los Angeles. A harbor. Large, steep hills. Homes packed close together. A giant red bridge. Got it. Sam said, and he stepped up to wait on line. He reached the ticket window. One ticket for the 928 to San Francisco, please. Sam handed over his credit card and began looking around. He had the weird feeling that, even though he was legally an adult, police were going to suddenly arrive at his side and demand they call his mother, take him home. Here you go, the man said, handing Sam back his credit card along with the ticket. Feel free to wait back in the atrium. The train will board on track four in an hour. He pointed to a walkway to Sam's right. Have a good journey. On the train, Sam sat by the window, pulled his hood up, and closed his eyes. As his physical eyes shut, he found himself instantly transported. Harsh wind blew against him on a snow-covered mountainside. Not quite a cliff, but a very steep slope. He was wearing a snowsuit, helmet and goggles, as a harness connected him to a rope that was anchored into the rock. Betty was harnessed on the same rope as Sam's, behind and below him. David and Ewan were tethered to a second rope running parallel to theirs. So what's our plan? Sam yelled over the wind. Simple, David yelled. Track down the girl and her mother. Find out where they're living and alert the authorities to the location of two missing persons. The wind on the mountainside began to slow and then dispersed. Together, they all climbed up the mountain, clipping in and out of the rope at the points where it was staked into the rock. Wait, Sam said. I don't understand. If it's just a matter of calling in a missing person, why do I need to be there? And why are they missing to begin with? We can find her more directly and easier if you're there, Ewan said. And she's missing by choice in a way. Betty said. It's a bit delicate of a situation, so it requires more finesse. What do you mean? Sam said. She suffers from PTSD, David said, and paranoid schizophrenia. The wind began to kick up the snow at their ankles. Sam paused as climbing to take in the information. Schizophrenia. Exactly what they were testing him for when he was a kid. It's different, Sam, Betty said, putting a hand on his shoulder. Sam turned around, facing her. She really needs help. Believes that enemies from the war are hunting her and her daughter. Ran away from her hometown, David said. 
but the grandmother is looking for them. She searches knowing her daughter's condition, knowing something is wrong. All you need to do, Betty said, is alert the authorities of a missing woman and her child, giving them her real name. That will connect them back to the grandmother who can take care of both of them, and she wants to. Timing will be critical, Ewan added. If she sees the authorities coming, suspects it, she'll disappear again. Another reason why it's best if you're there, Betty said. Finesse. The wind on the mountainside remained steady, but not as harsh as it was when Sam arrived, and they all resumed their steady climb. If this woman really was struggling with her visions or her paranoia, then getting her the help she needs was a good thing. It was, as they said, different from what Sam could see and hear. Different from what he experiences. It was different. Sam looked up the mountain, trying to see the top, but it was capped with fog. Then it hit him. Why did you bring me here? Sam said. Of all places, why here and where are we climbing? You tell us, lad, Ewan said. It isn't we who made this particular illusion. Sam opened his eyes, bringing his main attention back to the train where spring flowers dominated the scenery out the window. I made that mountain, he thought. Rather than ask more questions, Sam pulled out his sketch pad from his backpack and started drawing. A mountain scene with four climbers. This passed the time, hours rushing by as towns were left behind by the train. He slept a bit too, continuing his drawing again when he awoke. Six hours later, which felt much quicker, the train was slowing down and they were pulling into the San Francisco station. He took one last look at his drawing before stashing it away in his backpack. All around, the passengers were doing the same, gathering their bags, suitcases, and even their children. Everyone moved towards the doors before the train was fully stopped. Sam stayed in his seat, looking out the window at the station. A crowd of people waited to board the train, but littered throughout were a dozen police officers, their eyes on the train. Sam's heart skipped a beat as he knew they were there for him. David and the rest didn't argue the thought. His mom clearly didn't trust his text about staying over at Tyler's house tonight, probably due to his outburst at David that morning. Crap, he thought. How am I going to get out of this? Can they even stop me? Sam said. I'm 18. If your mother is claiming you're mentally unfit, Betty said. Yes, I think they can or they will. Sam thought. Either way, I'm going to be sent to see some doctors again, so... We charge on, Ewan said, finishing Sam's thought, standing in the aisle of the train, sword brandished. We charge on, Sam said, putting his backpack on both shoulders. Then, the train's doors slid open throughout the train. Sam rushed to the crowd by the opening train doors, putting his hood up. Everyone began to shuffle outside, and Sam stuck close to a tall man who was in the middle of a phone call. On the platform, another train was letting more passengers off, which began to mix with their group. Perfect, Sam thought. Then, Sam connected eyes with one of the officers, and they both froze. The officer reached for the radio on his shoulder as he began to push through the crowd towards Sam. Now! Ewan said. 
Sam ducked down and shimmied his way through the sea of legs to a large metal pole where a garbage can stood. He took one more quick look around, then swung his backpack off his shoulders and removed his orange sweatshirt. Three seconds, Ewan said, as Sam finished stuffing the sweatshirt into the front pouch of his backpack. Go! Sam remained squatted as he moved around the metal pole and then back the opposite way, towards the exit on the other side of the terminal. After a few more strides, Sam stood straight again and looked around. Four officers converged on the area Sam just left. Your pack, Ewan said. Hold it in front of you. Sam swung it around, clutching it to his chest. Don't turn around, Ewan added. He so wanted to look, but he trusted them. They would look for him, in their own way. They would know what the officers were looking for and if they spotted it. Sam kept moving with the crowd, approaching a wide set of stairs. At the top, two more officers waited, inspecting the crowd, people parting around them. Sam tried hiding behind as many people as he could. Put the backpack back on, Ewan said. You're going to have to make a run for it, and perhaps be a bit unkind too. Sam followed his instructions and positioned himself behind a man in a dark blue suit, heading straight for the officer. As the man reached the final step, before he turned to avoid the officer, Ewan signaled Sam and he pushed. The man in the blue suit stumbled forward into the officer and Sam ran the opposite way. He kept running, taking turns at Ewan's direction until he had sunshine and a breeze on his skin. Yellow cabs were lined up outside, their drivers talking to the people walking by, trying to sell them on a ride. Sam raised his hand up to one of them. The driver, a black man with long dreadlocks tied back, met Sam with a wide smile. They both got in the cab. Where to? he asked. Golden Gate State Park, Sam said, thinking of the only place he really knew of in the city. The driver nodded and Sam leaned back into his seat, taking in the view of the city as it flashed by. The city was the definition of spring, with bright colors everywhere, from flowers to houses to the cars and trolleys. Sam, David said, appearing next to him in the cab, we need to begin our search. Right, Sam said, making sure to keep his speech in his head. Any idea where to start? David smirked. They're not at the park. She's cleaning, Betty said. That way. She pointed out the back left window. Time for things to get strange, Sam thought. Excuse me, Sam said to the driver who responded with a smile and a nod into the rearview mirror. I have an odd request. Can I change our course? Of course, my brother. Where to? Can I just tell you a general direction to drive in? The driver's smile grew larger, eyebrows raised. Point the way. About 30 minutes later, the cab was driving down a beautiful, quiet neighborhood. All the lawns were immaculate, if you could see them at all. Some homes were tucked back, out of sight, behind metal gates and hedges. The rest had perfectly cut trees and bushes, flower beds and fountains, and the homes. Wow, the homes. Sam had never seen ones like this up close, only on TV or in movies. The road sloped upward gently and curved around in long loops. Here, Betty said, who was now sitting in the front seat of the cab. We wait here. Stop here, please, Sam called to the cab driver, who obeyed the request, 
as he'd done all the others, immediately and without question. The cab driver just looked around, wide-eyed, his breathing growing softer and quieter as he pulled the car to the curb. And then they waited. The cab driver received and responded to several texts while Ewan hummed a tune only Sam could hear. Any moment, Betty said. We'll get eyes on her and the daughter, too. Another minute ticked by, the taxi meter keeping time as the price of the ride grew. In the silence of waiting, Sam's mind filled with thoughts of his mother. Sam's mental state must have come into the picture if the police were able to find him in six hours or so. Perhaps that's why they didn't just board the train to search each passenger, Sam thought. They only just found out I was on the train, a hasty setup. Exactly, Ewan said, and we used that to our advantage. It's time, Betty said. Sam shifted to the window seat, Ewan instantly disappearing and reappearing into the middle seat. Now, Betty said. Just then, a gate opened across the street, not far ahead. A white van pulled out, turning directly towards Sam and the waiting taxi. The side of the van had a decal for a cleaning service, which he barely noticed. Sam's eyes were focused on the front window and to the people inside. A woman with short, curly blonde hair was driving. Lana. David's voice sounded softly in Sam's mind. Lana was smiling and talking to the girl in the seat beside her. Maybe five years old, her hair was also curly but a light brown, and she was staring at something in her lap. Ella, David's voice said. As the van approached them, and just before they passed, Lana's eyes caught Sam's. Her expression immediately shifted. Lana's eyes narrowed, her smile dropped, her lips pursed. Sam did his best to turn around casually, and wasn't about to tell the taxi driver to follow either. Think, Samuel. Ewan said. Sam nodded, knowing exactly what he meant. He replayed the last minute in his mind again, letting the details of the van become clearer in his memory. The decal on the side, what did it say? There was a picture of a vacuum and some trees for whatever reason. Lightning struck in his mind. He pulled out his phone and typed, Tree Top Cleaners. What does that even mean? He thought, but the thought died as the search results popped up. Three locations in San Francisco, Sam said in his mind. He felt it, guided to it, pointing his finger. As he pointed to the phone, three invisible hands pointed with him, all to the second location on the list. We can get ahead of them if they're not done for the day. Sam looked to the driver who was staring back through the rearview mirror, watching him closely. One last stop if you don't mind, Sam said. Not at all, the driver said. Where to? Or... Which way? Sam gave him the address of the treetop cleaners, and they were off. Sam was scrolling through his phone on a webpage that didn't take him long to find, plastered with pictures of two people, Lana and her daughter, Ella. The page was dedicated to their story, their missing persons report, and pleas for tips on their whereabouts, all set up by Ella's grandmother, Lana's mother. All the information Sam needed was on there. The cab came to a stop, and Sam picked his head up from his phone to see the sign for the treetop cleaners. 
He thanked the driver, paid him with his credit card, and got out. There was a fenced-off parking lot, where they kept the cleaning vans, to the side of a little office made from a couple shipping containers. Sam could see a few people working at desks inside through the front windows. The sun was getting lower in the sky, and it appeared that he beat Lana to the location. Perhaps she indeed had one more house to clean. Sam called the police to report a tip about a missing person, Lana Lobel, and her daughter Ella. He gave his location, where Lana would be returning shortly. They thanked him for the tip and said an officer would be on their way. He hung up the phone and sat down on the curb of the parking lot. An ease flooded over him. It was an eventful trip, but he did it. Soon, the police would arrive, hopefully timed right, and they'd take Lana and Ella in to reconnect them to Ella's grandmother. He still had to contend with his mother when he got home, but after this whole experience, he wasn't afraid of that anymore. He just located a missing person in a day. No one could convince him he was crazy, and he didn't care if they thought he was. A police car pulled into the lot of the treetop cleaners, and Sam's heart pumped a bit faster. They responded fast. Good, he thought. He got to his feet and walked over to the car. The officer rolled down the window. I'm Sam, he said. I called in the tip. The officer looked at Sam, over to her partner, and back to Sam. I'm Officer Fawcett, she said. Can you tell me more about the situation, Sam? He shrugged, looking over his shoulder to check for any incoming vans, then re-explained everything he said to the 911 operator. Right, said Officer Fawcett. Looks like we need to wait a bit. It's getting a bit cold. Why don't you hop in the back and we can wait for them to arrive? As she said that, Sam felt a shiver, the cold air of the approaching night moving through him. Okay, he said, and opened the back door. Sliding into the back seat, the cage between him and the officers up front was a weird sight. As he closed the door, he knew he shouldn't have. He wasn't paying attention. He looked for his friends and they were all around, but it was too late. Their expressions told him that. They must have been shouting the chill up his back. But if he's not paying attention, if he's not focused, he won't hear them. You're not here for my tip, are you? Sam said. No, Officer Fawcett said, looking back to him, not smiling. Sorry, Sam. We're here to bring you back to the station and back home. The taxi driver, Sam said. That's right, she said. I'm 18, though. Something you could take up with the courts if you'd like, but for now, we got orders. Sam tried to convince her to take his other story seriously, but his own report was citing possible schizophrenic delusions. Her calm tone and eyes showed genuine care, but she wasn't going to follow his tips. Officer Fawcett turned the car around in the parking lot and made for the exit as a cleaning van was pulling in. It was them, Lana and her daughter Ella. Again, Sam tried to convince Officer Fawcett to stop, but she kept rolling past. Sam's eyes caught Lana's again. Her eyes were wide and alert. She knew, or at least would suspect, that Sam was following her. The fact that he was getting carted away in a police car would not hold well in her interpretation of the scene. Sam knew that she would run again. Tonight would be Lana and Ella's last night in San Francisco. The next few hours, Sam lived out in a sort of haze of disbelief. His brief feeling of success leaked from him in an instant, failure invading his mind and body like a cancer. 
His friends were there, but silently, merely offering him comfort. It helped, but only a little. There was the phone call with his mother when he got to the station, in which Sam spoke very little, but ached at the pain she was feeling more than he feared the inevitable visits to the doctors when he returned. He tried to explain it off as a moment of rebelliousness, but she didn't buy it. The conversation ended with the typical, happy you're okay, but this conversation isn't over. Then, there was the news that he wouldn't be going home until the morning, as the next available train to Los Angeles wasn't scheduled until then. That meant spending the night in a holding cell. Officer Fawcett was good about it all. He had a private shower in the officer's locker room, and the holding cell was on its own, and made more comfortable with blankets and pillows. It still felt like jail when they locked the door. Even if he could get out to go to the bathroom at any time, an officer standing by, it was still a locked door. Night fell, the lights turned out, and Sam sat on his makeshift bed in the cell. All the blankets couldn't make this place comfortable. Betty appeared next to him, and he could feel her energy like a hug. David stood beside him, hand on Sam's shoulder. Ewan knelt before them, sword laid down at his side. I failed, Sam said in his mind, a ball in his throat. No, David said. You tried. Silence hung for a long time, and while focusing on his friends, for them to be silent was rare. They were there, though. He felt a bit better with that thought. Sam started to figure that he might have succeeded through all this if he didn't yell at David this morning, if his mother didn't overhear, and if she wasn't so afraid that Sam was schizophrenic like Lana. Was that going to be his fate? He would not risk losing his friends through drugs or whatever else doctors might demand. He was not going to spend his days thought of as crazy when he knew he wasn't. How else could he find a random person in the middle of San Francisco? He was connected. No one would convince him otherwise. Sam began imagining himself when he got home, his mother scheduling trips to the doctors for evaluation. Sam could lie his way out of it all, but a part of him didn't trust that idea and he began to envision a different pathway. He could go on the run, essentially becoming Lana, going to live his life away from his mother in hiding, but perhaps not as deeply hidden as Lana and her daughter. The idea did not lift his spirit, and the more details about that kind of life that swam before his closed eyes just served to increase the feeling of loneliness. Sam began to drift and was soon asleep, dreaming of climbing a wintry mountainside. Sam had been awake for a few hours when Officer Fawcett came to the holding cell where he spent the night. He sat on top of the makeshift bed of blankets and pillows. How are you, Sam? Officer Fawcett asked. He shrugged. Been better. Were you at least taken care of by the other officers on duty here? Anyone need a reprimand? No. Sam shook his head. Everyone was fine. When can I get out of here? She pulled out keys and unlocked the door. Sam was on his feet immediately and moved swiftly to leave the cell. He seemed to instantly breathe easier as soon as he passed beyond the bars of the cell. Officer Fawcett led Sam out into the main area where the officers sat at desks typing in reports or searching for information on their cases. 
She indicated to Sam to take a seat at her desk, but she didn't sit down with him. He looked up to her, his head tilting. Before we head out for the train station, someone would like to have a quick word with you regarding your tip on the missing person. If you would rather not talk to them, you don't have to. I'll talk to them, Sam said. Officer Fawcett nodded and walked away. A minute later, a man with a rugged, wild look approached Sam. He could have been living out in the woods somewhere by the look of him. His hair and beard were long, and he wore a flannel button-down, jeans, and boots that tied over his jeans. Samuel, said the man, his voice as gruff and wild as the rest of him. My name is Gerard, and I'm a private investigator. You called the police yesterday, saying you knew the whereabouts of Alana and Ella Lobel. Did you make that call? I did, Sam said. Something about the man's eyes, although dark in color, told a different story, and it comforted him. You're looking for them, Sam said. That's right. Been looking a long time. How did you find them, and why? That's hard to explain. Try. I... I was sort of told to find them? By who? Friends of mine. Sam couldn't help steal a glance at Ewan pacing behind this P.I. Gerard. Gerard noticed and glanced over his shoulder, where there was nothing but a wall. I see, Gerard said. You see? Some sort of psychic, then? Sam didn't say anything and kept his eyes from drifting over Gerard's shoulder again. Kid, I don't care, Gerard said. You could tell me you're a damn wizard. If you found them and could do it again, I don't care how. Lana is extremely smart and paranoid, and too good for her own sake at covering her tracks. I've been tracking her for over a year, and she's been missing longer than that. How did you hear about my tip? I have connections in the force, and they have a notification for any reports coming in about Lana and Ella. I was down in LA, following a lead there, got the call, heard your call to dispatch, and came as soon as I could. Okay, listen, kid. Sam. All right, Sam. Can you find them again? I checked this morning and Lana quit the cleaning service last night. She's going to switch cities again. Is probably already on her way. Sam looked to Ewan, then over his shoulder to David and Betty. They all nodded. Yeah, I can find them again. Excellent. Only, they're sending me back to LA in a little bit. They're not going to let me leave here. Then, the question is not can you help us, but will you? I know it's a lot to ask, but with all my skills and experience, I still fear I'll never find Lana without some help. The longer Ella is with her mom, in her present state of mind, the more danger she is in too. Sam didn't hesitate. What do I need to do? Gerard smiled, his eyes closed, shoulders relaxing, then he looked Sam in the eyes. You need to escape. Gerard left, and Officer Fawcett took his place sitting opposite from Sam. She explained what was going to happen next. She and another officer would escort Sam to the train station and see him boarded onto the 1025 train to LA. His mother and a couple more officers would await him there and ensure he made it back home. Do I need to use these? Fawcett said, holding up a pair of handcuffs. Sam shook his head. No. Fawcett eyed him closely and then gestured with her head. Let's go then. Sam got up and walked beside Officer Fawcett through the desks, towards the main entrance of the police station. Ewan was waiting outside the front doors, David standing on Sam's other side. 
The plan was simple and mostly counted on the fact that Officer Fawcett had taken pity on Sam since locking him into her squad car. Outside in the bright morning sun, the white marble stairs were blinding. Fawcett's partner stood outside a squad car parked out front. On the last step, Sam bolted to the right and yelled, Sorry! over his shoulder. He did feel bad, but once this was all over, he'd go quietly for real. Fawcett and her partner ran after him, but he knew he surprised them enough to get a good enough lead. That's all he needed. You've got 20 yards, David said, not appearing, but just speaking to him. Sam turned the corner out of sight from Fawcett. Then, two things happened at the same time. First, he locked eyes with Gerard across the street, who then sent a taxi away. Second, on Sam's side of the street, a black SUV was waiting where Gerard said it would be. The back door open. Sam dove inside, closing the door behind him. Fawcett and her partner turned the corner a moment later, and Gerard ran into the middle of the street, pointing after the taxi which turned away from the police station. Her partner ran back, most likely to get the squad car, and Fawcett spoke into a radio strapped on her shoulder. Sam watched out the tinted windows of the SUV as Fawcett began to talk to Gerard, her arms waving wildly. Gerard responded by pointing back to a forest green jeep across the street, most likely his car. Then, he pointed to the taxi and back to Fawcett. Now should be the right time, said a woman's voice from the front seat, and the SUV began to pull away slowly. Fawcett glanced to it, but they were soon turning the corner and then driving away with speed. Whatever Fawcett suspected, they were beyond her reach for at least a little while. Sam kept quiet, and eventually, as the SUV turned onto a highway, a woman with silver hair and green eyes turned to face him. Hello, dear, she said. You must be Sam. Sam nodded back. I'm Dorothy, Lana's mother, Ella's grandmother. I'm guessing Gerard found your story credible. I'll do my best to help, Sam said. Dorothy smiled, and Betty appeared next to Sam, David on his other side. Not that it really matters, Ewan said over Sam's shoulder, but why do I get the third row seat? Sam smiled back at Dorothy, trying not to laugh. Hey, I just want to take a quick 30 second break to tell you how you can best support myself and this podcast to keep these episodes coming. It's really easy. Share it with everyone you know subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your listening app of choice. Finally, visit my website to check out my online store and all the ways you can work with me, such as through my course, Design Your Life Like an Architect. Okay, thanks for your support, everyone, and back to the story. They parked in an empty lot off the highway and waited. Dorothy asked no more questions, but just sat in silence, checking her phone periodically. Fifteen minutes later, Gerard's green jeep pulled into the lot, parked beside them, and he got out. Dorothy did the same, and Sam followed. Sam pulled a small key out of his pocket and handed it to Gerard. Thanks, I didn't even need it. They didn't handcuff me. Gerard took the key and nodded, then put it in his pocket and leaned back against his jeep. All right, Sam, he said. How does this work? Oh, Sam said and looked around for his friends. 
Well, I can point us in a direction, like the game Hot and Cold. Or if she's in like a different city, I could describe certain details to clue us in to where that might be. That's how I knew she was in San Francisco. And why, might I ask? Dorothy began. Were you looking for my girls to begin with? Sam felt sweaty, and he felt the need to move his body, which just resulted in an awkward swinging of his arms. Well, Dorothy said, I was told that I could help Ella, that she's special, and if I found her, that she has the potential to do something great in this world. Dorothy's eyes raised, and a smile, barely visible, formed at the corner of her lips. Now's the time, Sam, Gerard said, pushing off his jeep and standing straighter. Lana's got a night's head start on us, assuming she went back on the run last night after quitting her job. Sam nodded and turned away from Gerard and Dorothy. He felt it easier to acknowledge his friends without seeing the solid people staring at him. An image of the Golden Gate Bridge swam before his eyes. Then trees, giant trees. A tent, hiking trails, some dirt and some built with wood planks. Then, just a feeling came over him, her intention. She's not far, Sam said. They're not planning on moving further for a while either. Somewhere over the Golden Gate Bridge, there's a park. It feels close. Giant trees, really immaculate hiking trails, some made with wood planks. Mere woods, Gerard said. That feels right, Sam said. Gerard looked at Dorothy, who seemed to be taking slow, deep breaths. Gerard nodded to her, a deep breath overcoming him as well. Okay, son, Gerard said, looking back to Sam. You ride with me and continue to point the way as best you can. If anything, we can check the campgrounds or nearby them. Let's go. They drove for about an hour, mostly in silence. The city faded in the distant background, smaller cities and towns making way to more and more nature, the trees becoming more prevalent and more robust with each passing minute. The road grew smaller as the trees grew larger, and they entered into the Muir Woods National Monument. Gerard paid a small fee for parking, but as they followed signs for the visitor's center, Sam felt a pull. Wait! Sam said, and Gerard immediately slowed the jeep further, which was already going fairly slow on the narrow and winding park road. That way. Sam pointed them away from the visitor center, towards the overflow parking area, then further still, as if they were leaving the park. Here, Sam said, as they reached another fork, and Gerard followed Sam's pointed finger to the right. A minute later, Sam turned them onto a near-hidden dirt road that seemed to be running parallel with the park entrance road they were first on. This must be used by the park rangers, Gerard said. They followed the dirt road for several more minutes, before Sam saw Ewan standing in the road up ahead, looking into the forest. We stop here. Lana's making some sort of camp in the woods for a time. Gerard obeyed, and he went to Dorothy's SUV parked behind them to fill her in. She'd wait with the cars. Gerard and Sam followed Ewan into the forest. Rather, Gerard followed Sam, who followed Ewan. A short way into the trees, they found an abandoned car. No doubt Lana's. Ewan led them deeper into the forest, the massive trunks of the trees reaching toward the sky like they were the legs of giants. They were becoming swallowed by shadows until Ewan stopped a few paces ahead. They were there. 
A small tent was perched in a fire pit assembled, but not burning anything yet. Branches snapped, leaves crunched, and many heavy somethings thumped to the forest floor. Sam turned to see Lana standing twenty feet away, a gun held firmly in her hand, aimed at himself and Gerard. A gathering of small logs and branches lay scattered at her feet. You, she said, gesturing with her gun at Gerard. Get on your knees. Hands up. Gerard moved slowly, but did as Lana instructed. A rustle came from the tent to their left, and Ella's head popped out looking around at everything. Ella, honey, Lana said, her tone firm but soft as well. Go back inside, okay? Don't come out until I say. But, Ella began. No buts. Inside and wait. Ella hesitated for only a brief moment before listening to her mother, her head disappearing into the tent. Sam noticed, however, that she didn't zip it up. Now, Lana said, her forearms tightening, her gun straightening at Sam. You're a bit young for this kind of work, aren't you? For what kind of work? Sam said. Don't play dumb with me, boy. Lana, Gerard said. He's merely helping me find you and Ella to return you home. No one is trying to hurt- Same old games, Lana said, her gun swapping to point at Gerard's head. Perhaps if I leave your corpses to be found, whatever government you work for will take me more seriously. Then, Sam saw David appear between himself and Lana, but he wasn't alone. Two men, in military gear, were with him. Lana, Sam said suddenly, before he had all the answers. The path was there, though, the way out to be revealed if he trusted David. You don't understand who we are or why we're here, but I can explain. You want me to listen to more lies? She said. Charlie wants you to stop being smart. Rather, stop being quick. Her face changed. She looked pale. What did you say? You heard me. Lana, I'm not here to kill you or harm you or Ella in any way. Neither is Gerard. We're here to bring you to your mother who is waiting by the road. Sam pointed over his shoulder from where they came. We wouldn't be safe there. Lana said. I wasn't clear enough, Sam said. No one is trying to harm either of you. Your brain is playing tricks on you, Lana. But how could you know what Charlie, what he... I can see things, Lana. I can talk to those who are no longer alive, among others. Charlie is here with Abel. Abel is gesturing something about feeling the ground. He's just got his palm on the ground. I don't know what that means. How can this... How can this be? Tears were streaking down her cheek. I don't know how, he said. I don't know why, either. I just know. And you know what condition you have, too. You know your mind plays tricks on you. If I stop being... quick, she said, echoing Charlie's words. Lana went into a sort of trance. She was still aware, still had the gun held, but limply. Several minutes passed, and she slowly moved into a crouch. Her free hand touched the ground, felt it like Abel did. Tears filled her eyes. Sam finally understood the meanings of it all then. Charlie and Abel, friends who she served with, who never returned from the war. Charlie's words were something he would say to her during times when Lana's mind began slipping. To slow down, be smart, but not rush to conclusions. Abel's gesture, something for when she'd lose control. It meant she was safe, 
Here and now, the ground wasn't shaking. No bombs, no tanks, nothing. She was safe. Her gun fell. Ella ran from the tent towards her mother, who was now crying streams of tears. They embraced and cried together. It was about ten minutes later before anyone dared break the silence. Gerard had gestured to Sam to do so. Sam had Lana agree to walk with them out to the road to where her mother waited. Gerard, very slowly, asked permission to take the gun, to not leave it for wandering hikers to find. It was over. Soon, their family would be reunited. Lana would get the medical help she needed, and Ella would grow up with the love and support she needs. Yet, with all this success, Sam found himself walking back feeling a sense of non-completion. This was a happy ending, but he knew there was one more challenge to confront. It was back to the police station for him, back home, and time to confront his mother. When Sam arrived back home, things were awkward and tense. His mother was both concerned for his mental state and his general well-being. He understood. He did run away to another city, escaped the police, and then suddenly returned himself back into their custody. No words were spoken that night. Just a fierce hug and a gesture for Sam to get to bed. As soon as he closed the door to his bedroom, Sam was instantly transported, in his mind, onto a stage in a grand auditorium. His friends filled the audience, along with a hundred others who he never met before, and they immediately erupted into a rousing, standing ovation. The feeling of love and appreciation gushed over him, tears filling his eyes. Suddenly, David was next to him, hand on his shoulder. That was a job well done, Sam, David said. Sam smiled. Thank you. And I also wish to thank you, said a woman on his left. She smiled and gave him a curt bow. It was the same woman that he saw having a secret conversation with David the morning they convinced him to go on his journey, dressed in the armor of a knight, a sword at her belt. Sam looked to David, his eyebrows narrowed, his mouth in a smirk. Then, when he turned back to the woman, she was gone. Who was that? Sam said to David. She's a guide for Ella. David said, and Sam felt awed by the idea. You didn't think you were the only ones with friends, did you, Sam? Most can't see, but it doesn't mean we're not there. In fact, someone's always there. The rest of the week, the tension between himself and his mother built. Sam refused to see a doctor, and being 18, he was able to hold firm to this choice. The alternative would be for his mother to seek control by proving him mentally unfit. It seemed a line she was not willing to cross, at the moment. So, they were at a standstill. Sam refused to make excuses, refused to deny his friends, and his mother could not bring herself to accept it as real. He could, of course, try to prove it to her, summon some relative of theirs, but his mom would just see it as a trick. She could be given all the proof and would not see it. That Friday, exactly a week since he went on his adventure, Sam and his mother were in another argument after school. They stood, facing each other in the living room. If you look at the symptoms, his mother said. Tell me what is different. I'm not hallucinating, Sam said. 
I don't understand why you can't hear what I'm describing to you. You're missing. They stood in silence for a moment, and then his mother went to the door in a huff. Soon, she came back. Someone's here for you. Sam made his way to the door where Lana stood waiting outside. He opened the door and Lana met him with a warm smile. Hello again, Sam, she said. Or, really, it feels like hello for the first time in my case. You're feeling better? Sam asked. Yes. It's a bizarre feeling, though. It's like I just woke up from a very vivid dream. How's Ella? Lana smiled broader. She's amazing. Loving her grandma's house. She'll start school next week and is very excited. This is all thanks to you. I just did, please, she interrupted. Very few people could ever pull me out of that dream state. Times when I'd feel the world conspiring against me. Or times I'd feel danger was everywhere. Those delusions made sense a bit when I was overseas in combat. It wasn't until I returned from my tour that I was officially diagnosed. But, while overseas, there were two friends who could always bring me back to Earth when I began losing control. Charlie and Abel. The things you said to me and showed me in the forest. No one could have known that. No one who is alive. Lana's eyes watered, but her posture remained straight and sturdy. You have a gift, and you saved my life and my daughter's. There are no words, no gesture I could ever say or do to repay it. Sam smiled and swallowed hard. There's no need, he said. Hoping you and Ella was more of a gift to me than you know. Lana nodded. Then, I guess I'll just say thank you. She held out her hand, and Sam took it. Good luck, Sam. If you ever need anything and I can help, I believe you'll be able to find me. They shared a small laugh, and then she left. A black SUV waited for her at the curb. Sam waved and closed the door. When he turned around, his mother was there. She was shaking, sobbing, tears streaming hard down her cheeks. She gasped for air, her emotions overtaking her. Sam got to her just before her legs gave out and they were hugging, partly holding her up, partly just hugging. Sam, she muttered. Sam, I... He knew what she wanted to say. Knew that she overheard everything Lana said, that those words somehow, finally, pierced through her wall of disbelief. Anger flooded Sam. Now? After all this time? Resentment. She couldn't trust what I said? It had to come from a stranger? His mother kept trying to get the words out. I'm sorry. They finally burst free of her lips, still gasping between sobs. I don't understand, but I'm sorry. His anger, his resentment was justified. He knew it. It was righteous in a way, deserved. Yet, he began to battle with his true desire. Ten years, all he wanted was for his mother to believe him, to have no walls between them. Now she did believe, and it became clear to him where his justified anger and resentment would lead them. Building walls. He fought for understanding as David taught him back when his father left. Sam pulled his mom away so he could look into her eyes. She was gaining control now. Clearly sorry, clearly loves him and always has. What more could I want, he reasoned to himself. Mom, he said. Then he waited. 
waited for her breath to become more controlled, for her eyes to see him here and now. Mom, we missed Kung Fu night last week. What do you say we doubled down tonight? His mother went to say something, but Sam gave her a warning look. The best way forward, he figured, was to simply move forward. I'll call in the delivery, she said, smiling gently, caressing his face. I'll pick the movies? She nodded, and that was it. The future he wanted, anger and resentment, wouldn't get him there. He could find understanding in her worries, in her fears. That was enough. It was enough to get on with. He winked to David, Betty, Ewan, and the others standing silently all around him. In many ways it was over. Struggles he'd been wrestling with since a child. And now his new life would begin. He thought of David's words about Ella's potential with her life, and he wondered what this whole experience had done to his own potential. Was that your intention all along? Sam asked David in his mind. At least partly, David smiled, turned away, and began whistling a made-up tune, hands behind his back, before disappearing from sight. The echo of his whistling remained happy, expansive, full of potential. listening, everyone from everywhere. I hope it added a little something good into your day. Now, for our takeaway idea. This idea is quirky, kooky, mad, and crazy, but hopefully fun and funny all the same. As I write these stories, I don't begin with a takeaway in mind. All the ideas that come out or that I desire for the story are not about sharing something with you or even about saying something I want to say. It's all about my desires for my main character. What do I want for them? What do I want Sam to learn, to experience, to realize, actualize? I start with a character where they are at the beginning of the story and the ideas form around them to get them where they need to go, where I feel they need to go. They have history, personality, hopes, dreams, and fears. These characters become real to me, or real enough. You could say they become my own invisible friends. So, I thought I'd propose taking this idea a little further. Regardless of your beliefs, whatever they may be, I'd like you, I'll do it too, to spend this next month believing you are guided, like Sam, every day. But I want to go further than that. Let's make it more fun and more personal too. I want you to create your very own invisible friend. I told you this would be quirky, kooky, mad, and crazy. You might believe you are guided, and others might believe that idea is a load of crap. Either way, I'm going to encourage you to try this. If you do believe you are guided, then this is a way to take a grand guiding force and bring it closer to you in the form of a nearby invisible friend. For those who think this is crazy, it's an opportunity to insert a little play into your life. It can reduce stress and fear by getting your thoughts out of your head and imagining an extremely wise friend giving you the advice you need to hear. And again, if anything, it could be fun and funny. If you still have doubts, give me two more minutes to convince you. To recap, for this month, 
I'd like you to create an invisible friend. And I mean create them. What's their name? What do they look like, talk like, walk like? Are they wise in some areas but not much help in others? Are they funny, serious? Draw a picture if you can. Now for the not as easy part. Talk to them. Quirky, kooky, mad and crazy. I like to journal my thoughts, so maybe I'll imagine a conversation with them there. Or perhaps you could meditate with them. Ask them questions. Let your mind wander to this external perspective outside yourself, and you will find different answers than you normally would. Should you listen to those answers? Maybe, and maybe not. If your invisible friend is something like the Mad Hatter, there could be wisdom in the words, or it could just be the tea talking. Napoleon Hill, author of Think and Grow Rich, wrote about creating a mastermind group. He describes the concept as aligning yourself with people who have similar goals or a similar purpose. Together, many minds create an even better and invisible mastermind. But finding these real people can be tough, so Napoleon Hill created his group in his head. He created this committee of people he respected from history and literally had a meeting with them every week, in his head. The idea for this month is to do just that, but have a little more fun by creating the perfect invisible partner for you. But hey, if you want to just imagine a historical figure, do that. The goal is to step out of our minds which can get riddled with the stuff of the world, the fears, anxieties, worries, doubts, and more. Our mind can take on so much, but when it does, it can be hard to find clarity on the things that matter most. So step out and talk to this friend. If you're feeling bold, talk aloud if it helps. I'd say make sure no one is around when you do that, but hey, it could make this even more interesting. If your invisible friend starts telling you that the world is plotting against you, that secret forces are coming after you and your child, I'd put this exercise to bed. One last tip. It's hard to remember to talk to or seek advice from someone who is invisible. So another crucial step is to create some tangible physical reminder, a piece of string around the wrist, a sketch of your friend by your desk or in your wallet, a reminder in your phone to take five minutes with them or 30 minutes once a week if you're like Napoleon Hill. Air your grievances, pour out your stressful or fearful thoughts, and let in a new perspective. Plot out your goals and dreams, and let this invisible friend encourage you. Point out the nonsense logic built by our fears. Let them be whatever you need. Good luck, and I hope you share your experience. Want to learn more about this concept of the mastermind in Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich? Well, now you can with this episode's sponsor, Audible. Audible is full of audiobooks of every genre, podcasts, and Audible originals. Thanks to their sponsorship, you can get a free one-month subscription, including a credit for a free audiobook, by going to www.audibletrial.com slash more than a story. I've had an Audible subscription for years now, and I listen to books and Audible originals while I'm at the gym, on a run, cooking dinner, and going on long car rides. I love using audiobooks to get me through some of the mundane tasks like grocery shopping, too. I get done what needs to get done, all while listening to something like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. 
Again, to claim your free one-month subscription and audiobook, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash more than a story. That's www.audibletrial.com slash more than a story. The link is in the description of the episode as well as displayed on my website too. That's all, my invisible friends. Please consider sharing this podcast, subscribing, and writing a review on your listening app of choice. It means a lot and does make a difference. Don't forget to follow me on social media to discover more behind-the-scenes details. Links in the description. And check out my website for some more goodness. All right, see you all next month.